Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, I will talk about the early history of Hollywood using a book called The Hollywood Studio System by Douglas Gomery. This book deals with the business side of Hollywood. It's not about the stars in the movies. You could say it's the real story of Hollywood, but it's a story that rarely gets told, which is why I want to tell it. This podcast is based on a book called The Hollywood Studio System, and the author is Douglas Gomery. There's no actual biography in the book about Douglas Gomery, which is a bit unusual, so I had to look it up uh, in the Wikipedia, so I'll just read a few things from that. Douglas Gomery is a resident scholar at the Broadcasting Archives at the University of Maryland and Professor Emeritus at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland in College Park. He holds a doctorate in communication from the state of Wisconsin and has taught mass media history at the University of Wisconsin, Northwestern University, New York University, and the University of Utrecht. He's the author of 21 books on the history and economics of the cinema and broadcasting in the United States. Introduction to the Hollywood Studio System by Douglas Gomery. Uh, for this history, uh, we'll start off with an overview of the old Hollywood studio system from the years 1930 to 1949. In another podcast, I will go into details for a specific studio. And for that, I have uh, chosen Paramount Studios since uh, it had a major impact on Canada. Uh, later on in, the, in future podcasts, I will talk about Hollywood in the present and how it compares to the old Hollywood that we're talking about now. Speaking of details, uh, before I go on, I need to explain a few things for people not familiar with the film industry. There's three stages in the filmmaking process, production, distribution, and exhibition. The production process is obvious, it's the making of films. The next one, the distributor, is the one who sells films from an independent producer or a studio to an exhibitor, and the exhibitors are the people who own the movie theaters and present the film to paying customers, and that's you. So now let me describe the old studios. And there were eight film studios that mattered during the period. The eight were Paramount, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, RKO, Universal, Columbia, and United Artists. Uh, the author states that there was actually others, like Disney. Whatever happened to them? Remember Disney? No, well, now it's a different thing. But back then, uh, Disney was not a major studio. There were others like Monogram and Republic Film Studios. These were small studios, so they don't count in this uh, analysis. In the eight studios, five are what are called the majors. Paramount, MGM, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO. They were fully integrated, as the author states. They produced the movies, distributed them, and exhibited them. That's what fully integrated means. You'll hear the words 
majors a lot in this podcast. Two of the eight, Universal and Columbia, did production and distribution only. No exhibition. They had no uh, movie theaters of their own. And the last one, United Artists, well, they only did distribution for independent uh, producers. Okay, so I hope that uh, was clear. Let's start. The Hollywood Studio System. Corporations ran the old Hollywood studio system. That's important to know. Corporations owned and ran the studios. Movies then and now are not made by a couple of guys working in a garage. It was a business run from New York because the corporations that owned the studios had their corporate offices in New York. Movies were made in the West Coast, in California, but all the important decisions about the movies were made in New York. Movies uh, were popular then, of course. Movie audiences were a bit of a, what is called captured audience, since for entertainment purposes, the only competition in the years of the studio system was the radio. There was no TV, no internet, etc. So Gomery says that uh, no industry received more publicity in newspapers and magazines and radio than movies. There were, of course, specialized fan magazines for the movie stars and all that, and everybody went to the movies, sometimes twice a week or more. Movies were central to most people's lives. But the paradox is that uh, even though everybody went to the movies, actually there was very little known about the corporations that ran the studios that made the movies. There's a lot of surveys of film history in specialized film journals, but the knowledge of these giant corporations doesn't, doesn't even fill one bookshelf. And one of the reasons for this was because the study of the film industry requires all kinds of, of skills for analysis and endless interpretation of complicated economic data. Economists had a hard time with the movie business because the products seem so ephemeral, which basically means they're very disposable. It's not a thing that uh, economists are used to analyzing. And movies are not really a manufactured good like an automobile. But it's not a traditional service either, so they don't really know how to handle it. And that's why there's very little specialized books about this. I suspect also, and I guess it's my own opinion, but the economists kind of looked down on movies. And it wasn't just because they didn't seem like a real product, it just had a kind of an attitude about them, I guess. But it is a product. It certainly makes a lot of money. But the weird thing is that economists love to talk about profit and loss. And the American film industry, the author states, uh, has always been, like other industries, with profits and losses and a common goal, making money. So contrary to what they say during the Oscars, uh, it was the profit motive which dictated the nature of film in the United States during the studio era. Uh, during the first three decades of the 20th century, to get these profits, the American film industry evolved a complicated system for handling film production, distribution, and exhibition. The people who ran these studios basically set up a system of constraints which blocked entry of other people, other competitors, into their system of filmmaking. And this monopoly basically defined how Americans, and I guess by default Canadians, understood movies. The author makes the, the revealing point 
that it's not Hollywood production of film which provided the majors with the fundamental source of their power. It was their worldwide distribution networks, which gave them enormous cost advantages and their theater circuit, providing them with direct access to the box office. And this point goes against the Hollywood narrative that, you know, they just make movies that people want to see and that's how they succeed. The book goes on to explain that this is not how things worked in Hollywood. The Rise of the Studio System The monopoly from the ownership of production, distribution, and exhibition represented the full-grown Hollywood studio system, but this did not happen overnight. It took about 30 years for a competitive movie industry to turn into a monopoly. The studio system starts in the 30s and goes to the late 40s, but there was a period before this where there was actual competition in the film industry. Because of this competition, it was easy to get in and out of the film business. Films then, the author says, were treated more or less like a novelty. They were sold by the foot. The record shows that there were hundreds, even thousands, of movie producers at that time. There were also a lot of independent uh, distributors and exhibitors. So that was the time to get into the movie business, the early days before the studios established a monopoly. And there's an interesting uh, side note here. Before the studio system became a monopoly, there was actually another group of people in the U.S. who tried to monopolize the film industry. And this was not the people who made movies, but the people who made the movie equipment, the equipment manufacturers. In 1908, they got together to form a cartel called the Motion Picture Patents Company, and they tried to use their monopoly because they obviously controlled all the equipment to make movies. So without them, you couldn't make a movie. So they had control over film producers. They wanted to extort uh, fees from the producers and the exhibitors, so in order to do this, they formed their own distribution company called the General Film Company. This corporation, the first nationwide distributor in the United States, actually sought to acquire or drive out of business all other movie companies. In 1910, it looked as if the fully integrated corporation would control film entertainment in the USA. But, as the author says, the embryonic monopoly failed. As with other cartels, people inside it thought they could make more profit outside of it. So they broke with the policy of that cartel and did their own thing. The U.S. federal government uh, back in those days didn't like monopolies, so they tried to sue for the violation, but that didn't work. But it didn't matter that the government failed because the cartel was already finished. The cartel ended because of the basic greed of their very own members. So that went away. But it's interesting to note that before the Hollywood studio monopoly of the 30s and 40s, there was another one before that. So as the patents cartel faded away, other film companies basically tried to do the same thing, establish their own monopoly. And one of them was called Famous Players, which later became Paramount Studios. And they basically wanted to dominate the whole U.S. movie industry. So they came up with some strategies to make themselves king of the world. What they did was that they differentiated their products, their movie products, 
and distributed them on a national and international level. Plus, they dominated the exhibition through the ownership of a small number of first-run theaters. I remember uh, first-run theaters means that the good pictures, when they came out of the studios, went straight to these uh, first-run theaters. That's why they're called first-run. Other types of movie theaters were second-run, or what we would call nowadays uh, repertory, meaning that they showed movies that had already been showed before, a month before, or even years before. So one way to differentiate the, the movie product was having movie stars in your movies and promoting them. At first, the, the geniuses who ran the studios didn't know that the audience went to see a specific actor or actresses in a movie. And because of this, the early producers did not exploit or promote the actors and actresses that they had working for them. So we have to remember, of course, that this is in the early days, the silent movie days. So there was no uh, what we would now call uh, movie stars yet. Famous players promoted certain people who seemed to guarantee box office revenues. One of them was Mary Pickford, a Canadian, a superstar to her adoring fans, who basically started uh, in the movies uh, making $100 per week and then ended up making $15,000 per week in less than a decade. And they paid her that kind of money because the movies she appeared in were popular and made big money for the studio. So famous players is the one to blame if you don't like the star system. They're the ones who invented it. In order to replicate that success with Pickford, famous players then went and picked some people who were popular on the stage, figuring that, well, if they're popular on the stage, they'll be popular in movies. And that didn't always work. They're a strategy, so-called, uh, is even advertised in their name, Famous Players. But uh, Famous Players didn't invent anything. By concentrating on movie actors, they latched onto something that was already happening. So s since they, the main reason for people to go to movies then were actors and actresses, it made sense to lock those people, those actors, into long-term contracts and put them in endless movies to milk their popularity the last dollar and then discard them. And the author says, quote, Gone were the days of films being sold by the foot. Each motion picture became a unique product. Unquote. And this all started with famous players. Uh, the other winning strategy for famous players was national and worldwide distribution. They found that in movie distribution, there were savings to be made in making a division between advertising sales and promotion. So during and immediately after the First World War, Famous Players extended its territory to sell movies to the entire world. By 1925, it had far-reaching sales network in place. And, of course, since they dominated, nobody else could come into their territory. Kind of like a, a drug dealer, I guess you could say. You know, once you're, you've got that ter territory, you don't allow competition. And then, of course, if you're starting out as a movie studio just then, you didn't have all these resources that famous players had. Famous players, because they had all this, was generating lots of income and had millions coming in. So you can do whatever you want, anything you feel like, because you got in at the ground floor and you maximize your competitive advantage, as they say. 
So if you're just a beginner, a small movie studio, you can't compete. And then finally, famous players learned that they didn't even have to own all the movie uh, theaters because they owned first and some second run movie theaters in major cities. They figured out that they didn't need to have a, a movie theater in every single city as long as they had control of the big cities in the US and by default Canada. They pretty much had all the cash because all the profits came mainly from big cities. So if you control all the big cities in your distribution network, well, you get all the money. So it doesn't matter if a small town doesn't show your movie. You, don't, you just don't care. So by 1930, uh, famous players, later renamed Paramount, controlled over 1,000 movie theaters with more than 2 million patrons per week. Other studio execs looked at what Paramount was doing and tried to imitate them. And those that succeeded ended up as a major film studio and the others, well, they went bankrupt. Eventually, there were five major studios that dominated the American film industry. And a studio monopoly was born. The structure of the studio system. The U.S. motion picture industry never produced much in the way of real economic activity. It produced only 0.5% of national income of the U.S. in 1946. Even in terms of labor, the industry's employees only made up 0.5% of the total U.S. workers. And measured by sales, the film industry never reached the top 30 U.S. companies. For 1937, it placed 45th in sales ranking in the list with coal companies, life insurance companies, manufacturing cars, etc. These things generated sales from three to five times more than motion pictures. But when you compare other forms of recreation available at the time, then the motion picture industry dominated. In 1937, movies accounted for three quarters of the gross income spent on amusement. But for business historians, motion pictures have always been a relatively small industry. As the author states, despite the glamour and hype, the movie industry could never be considered more than a moderately successful industry. But like other businesses, the movie corporations didn't put money in their infrastructure. The investments did not go in places where most people would think they would go. It did not go into the production side of the business. That accounted only for 5% of the total studio asset. By and large, most investments by the companies that owned studios took place on the exhibition side, some 94%. Quote, the amount of capital required for production paled when compared with the cost of financing a chain of several hundred theaters. Thus, although we know a great deal about the glories of MGM, that company was simply one subsidiary of a much larger theater corporation called Lowe's Incorporated. All the highly paid executives of the period knew where corporate revenues originated. For a clear picture of the studio era, one has to describe the majors as diversified theater chains 
producing features, shorts, cartoons, and newsreels to fill their houses. The term studio is a misnomer which has stuck. End quote. All this means is that owning your own movie theaters was where the big money was, not in production of movies. And that goes against the standard history of the movie studios that gets repeated endlessly. An interesting uh, note here also is that the, of the rarely publicized struggle within the corporate apparatus of the majors. Selling movies, which is a, a purely commercial process, demanded one set of skills, making films as a creative endeavor, even in Hollywood's uh, factory days, needed a different set of skills. Film producers wanted to experiment and try new things to gain an edge on their competition. And if they decided for the same old stories told the same way, uh, there were other producers who would outshine them if they didn't keep up. But exhibitors wanted predictable box office attractions. So they tended to want the same kind of products that had worked best in the recent past. So all of these companies struggled more from within than from outside. And that created plenty of stories for future biographers of old Hollywood. That's the end of episode 6, The Early History of Hollywood, part 1. The next podcast will conclude the series. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com. That's nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now. Thank you.